What are the challenges facing our courts and how should they respond to them? I'm Dan Ringer and we'll talk about the challenges and problems facing our courts right now on The Law Works. From West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Closed captioning for The Law Works is made possible by a grant from the Monongalia County Bar Association to support legal information and education for all West Virginians. The Law Works is made possible by major grants from the West Virginia Attorney General and from Software Systems Incorporated, a West Virginia company established in 1975 which provides high-end support services, programming, and consulting for county government AS400 mid-range computer systems as well as PC-based systems, and by a grant from the West Virginia Bar Foundation. The West Virginia Bar Foundation, the philanthropic organization for West Virginia's legal profession and justice system, promoting public knowledge of the law in West Virginia. How should our courts respond to the challenges of an ever-increasingly complex society, especially if the legislatures won't address them? My guest is former West Virginia, uh, West Virginia Supreme Court Chief Justice Richard Neely. Richard, welcome back. Well, thank you. I'm always happy to be in Morgantown. Well, I'm glad to have you here, especially with this topic. You served on the West Virginia Supreme Court for how long? Oh, I served on the West Virginia Supreme Court 22 years. And, uh, and I was in the legislature for two years before that. And you're a private practicing attorney now, currently. Now I practice law every day. <laughs> so when, when you look at the courts and you, and you see these challenges, what kind of issues, problems are we talking about? Well, a lot of people don't really understand the division of responsibility between courts and legislatures and administrative agencies. Well, the legislatures make the laws and the courts interpret them. That's what you're taught in the eighth grade. That's the, that is the eighth grade view of the world. And it's reinforced by the fact that we have all of our government housed in buildings of classical Greco-Roman design, big domes, large columns, uh, the, the sorts of things that you would find in the ruins of, of Athens or Rome or uh, one of the ancient civilizations, which leads to the, to the notion that perhaps American democracy was somehow a revitalization of some classical ideal, some classical ideal of Athenian direct democracy. But is, isn't the whole point of having these massive limestone structures, sandstone in some mm -hmm. cases, the evidence of the sovereign's power in the community? It's partially that, but it sends the wrong, it sends the wrong historical message. The American government is a feudal structure. By feudal, I actually mean the Middle Ages. Our legislatures are direct descendants of the English Parliament. The English Parliament began to function about the year 1100. 
the reign of Henry I. Uh, it's taken various different forms. It's certainly not the exact same thing as it was in 1100. But a parliament, a legislature, a congress is an institution that is actually designed to do nothing. It is an institution designed to check the power of a king. And remember, the American government is simply a reconstitution of the English government that existed at the time of the American Revolution and the American Constitutional Convention. In, in America, the House of Commons has become the House of Representatives. In America, the House of Lords has become the United States Senate. And the King has become the elected President of the United States. And now, actually, there was great debate about whether we would have a king back originally. Exactly. There was a lot of pressure, a lot of discussion about making George Washington the first king of the United States. So the American government reflects attitudes that were first developed in the 12th, 13th, 14th centuries. And remember this, the biggest engine, there are two big engines of repression in this world. One is external invasion. Attila the Hun, Genghis Khan, Adolf Hitler, uh, Saddam Hussein, conquerors, people who come to take over your country and steal your goods and enslave your people. The second big engine of oppression is government itself. Government, if you look all over the world, is a major engine of oppression of people. That's what's going on in Syria. That's what was going on in Iraq. That's what was going on in, um, in, in Iran. But there'd be a lot of people who would say governments are also enablers of people. G governments in the modern world are enablers of people, particularly in Western Europe, the United States, the British Commonwealth, you know, Canada, Australia, New Zealand. But in much of the third world, when Western powers go in to impose some kind of democratic government, what you end up getting is one man, one vote, one time. Because the big thing that democracy gives you is not good government. Democracy does not necessarily bring you a good government. What democracy brings you is a government that you can get rid of. And in the countries where democracy works, that's Western Europe and the countries I mentioned, the United States, People actually follow the rule that if a party loses the election, it's out of power. Most governments don't like being gotten rid of and indeed resist being gotten rid of, which is why throughout most of the world, most elections are rigged. You're about to see that in Afghanistan. I mean, you're going to see it all over the, the, the Middle East where there is some kind of election set forth by the United Nations or uh, uh, intervening powers, that, that governments will consistently rig elections in countries that don't have a great democratic tradition. But a parliament, to get back to, to, to Congress and to gridlock, a parliament was set up primarily to keep 
the executive branch, the king, from doing really stupid things, particularly fighting wars and raising taxes. And if you look at the West Virginia legislature, what you will see is an organization designed not to pass laws, but to keep stupid laws from being passed. If you look at the committee structure, the way in which laws have to take a, an extremely convoluted path to, uh, to enactment, you see an institution that, that does not pass at least five or six out of seven laws that are introduced. That's the purpose. And, and the nice thing about a parliament or a legislature or a congress is that it is possible to kill really stupid legislation in such a way that no one knows who killed it. It is simply the process that kills it. I once saw a bill that was somewhat controversial, but, but, but sponsored by a very powerful and well-entrenched special interest, get killed in two successive sessions of the legislature with, at the end of that cycle, every single member of the legislature having voted for it, or virtually every member of the legislature having voted for it. Because the, the process itself is designed to allow bad laws to be killed without anyone having to take individual responsibility. We're talking about challenges facing our courts. My guest is former West Virginia Supreme Court Chief Justice Richard Neely. I'm Dan Ringer, and this is The Law Works. Well, the process you just described allows people to deliberately introduce stupid bills too, relying on their fellow legislators to vote it down. Exactly. People often sponsor bills for constituents in the firm hope that the bill will be defeated. But uh, they've done what they were supposed to do for their constituents. Their constituents are happy and they get reelected. But this process, this, 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 this break on government that is the primary function of a, of a parliament or a legislature or a congress means that you are inevitably going to have gridlock. People talk about the fact that we have gridlock in this country and that people are not civil to one another in politics. The truth of the matter is that people were never really civil to one another in politics. In, in 1858, 1859, you actually had congressmen from South Carolina beating senators from Massachusetts senseless with hickory canes. I mean, if you think it was, it's uncivil today, if you go back to the last century, you have serious lack of civility. The, the, people get hot about political issues. And, um, and, and, and civility is not something that is necessarily issued with every parliament, congress, or legislature that meets. What is issued with them is gridlock. Gridlock is what keeps bad things from, from, from being passed, but it is bad things from everybody's point of view. For example, right now, you have... Uh, a lot of people who are infuriated, absolutely infuriated, by the lack of progress in immigration reform in the Congress. Uh, there are very large constituencies of people who are offended by 
millions of people paying taxes and living in this country as as um, uh, as immigrants, but who have not been accorded the status of citizens. And so, from their point of view, this gridlock is incomprehensible and also reprehensible. But let's assume that my favorite senator, Ted Cruz from Texas, gets elected president and introduces a bill to appropriate $10 billion for the hiring of 10,000 more immigration and naturalization officers and 500 administrative law judges with the intent of deporting every single illegal immigrant currently living in the United States. Now, at that point, gridlock begins to look really good to the same constituency who's complaining about gridlock with regard to immigration reform right now. So it, I'm in favor of it unless it works against me, then I'm against it. That's right. That's right. And everybody has that, everybody basically has that natural instinct. What Shakespeare said, tis better to bear the ills you have than fly to others that you know not of. So, and, and the same thing is true with the budget. The budget is a lot of fun because you have large constituencies who believe that support for people who are in desperate straits should be improved by the government, and that taxes on the top 1%, the top 5%, the top 10%, whatever it is, wherever you draw the line, should be raised. There is very little inclination to raise taxes across the board, as, for example, to double the Social Security tax that everybody pays on the first dollar. Obviously, the top 1%, the top 5%, or the top 10% are extremely unhappy about having their taxes raised. So you have the deficit. The top 10% are not going to stand still for the raising of taxes on them. And the bottom 50% is certainly not going to stand still for having any reduction in their benefits, any later retirement age, any, in, any reduction in Social Security payments, any cutback in Medicaid, Medicare, Medicaid. So what happens? We have a huge deficit. There's a third player in this, and the third player is China. China owns a, a trillion dollars worth of of American federal bonds, which they can't sell. Because if they sell them, they're going to destroy the bond market and the rest of what they own is going to become valueless or at least have a big decline in value. They also can't invest in a lot of things they'd like to invest in in the United States because of the Foreign Investment Act. So. What does China get out of supporting the American deficit? Well, China gets employment. China makes stuff and ships it to the United States, and lots of people in China are working doing this. And what governments most want for their people is jobs. People with jobs don't revolt. People with jobs are not discontent. So China gets a combination of jobs, and it also gets technology. It gets to train its people in all kinds of different jobs. Little girls from the countryside who never learned to read and write 
come into the city and learn industrial skills, learn certain rudimentary processes that allow them to be successful industrial workers. Bright Chinese go to engineering school and learn high-level engineering skills. Other people learn to be supervisors and tech and 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 and, um, um, and foremen in in factories. China is acquiring huge amounts of knowledge by manufacturing things for the West. So you have the deficit continuing to grow. The bottom part of America is happy because their benefits continue. The top part of America is happy because their tech taxes haven't gone up. And China is happy because it gets the benefit of employment and, and, and technology. And the question is, how long will this go on? Well, there's an old rule in economics, which is that something that can't go on forever won't. So it probably won't go on forever. But as long as it does go on and there isn't any crisis, you're going to have gridlock, and gridlock is what the system is designed to provide. Well, how does this relate to our court structure? That's the interesting point. Now, now let's go back historically. Where was the law generated in England beginning in the uh, 1100, in the 12th, 13th, 14th century? The law was generated by the courts. The courts made almost all the law of England. Now, there were parliaments that met that did major things. For example, there was something called the Constitution of Clarendon in 1164. And there were major statutes passed that controlled land tenure because a lot of the landowners, high landowners as well as just ordinary farmers, had gone to the Crusades and they got killed. I mean, the Crusades were not one of those things that one necessarily survived. So that there were lots and lots of vacant estates. And the question was, how do we figure out who now owns these estates in a time when you had no written deeds, you had no written records, uh, most people couldn't read and write? So the, the, the Parliament came in and passed some, some major land reform. A uh, hundred years in, in 12, about 1265, um, there was a problem with the church acquiring huge amounts of land, paying no taxes, um, and uh, generally monopolizing large parts of England. And so the legislature of the parliament passed um, the, uh, the Statute of Mortmain, which is still on the books, by the way, in West Virginia. I mean, we have a modern Statute of Mortmain that we in inherited from England. But those are real exceptions. Most law was made by the courts. For example, when I came to practice law in, in West Virginia, when I came back from Vietnam, there was no statutory definition of murder or statutory definition of armed robbery. When we say statutory definition, we mean that the legislature right. has adopted a law that says right. this is what this crime is. Right. There was no there was no legislatively adopted definition. It was a common law crime and its definition had been passed down for hundreds of years by common law court decision. Uh, all of the commercial law in the 19th century had been generated by uh, by Lord Mansfield in England which was never borrowed by the United States because of our hostility to England after the American Revolution, but it was duplicated by Chancellor Kent uh, on the New York Supreme Court, or the, actually the New York Court of Chancellery, and the, um, 
uh, and Joseph Story on the United States Supreme Court. Courts have always been major lawmakers. And so because the legislature tends not to be very much involved in a lot of nitpicking issues, it is the courts that end up making the majority of the law that govern the lives of most citizens. Well, how do they do that? Well, they do it by, uh, by incremental decisions. Let me give you an example. Right now we have this whole issue of same-sex marriage. Now, it doesn't make any difference how one feels about same-sex marriage, whether you're for it or against it or whatever, whatever position you personally take. Same-sex marriage is with us and it is apparently an ineluctable force. So we have to somehow deal with it. What happens if a same-sex couple is lawfully married in Massachusetts, moves to West Virginia for some reason, such as being transferred in here by Dow Chemical, and now decide to divorce? Do they get a divorce? Does the court, well, nobody knows. But somebody is going to have to decide this. And, uh, and somebody is also going to have to decide how property is going to be split among people who have decided to become partners in some state that allows single-sex marriage. Well, what, and we have the same problem in West Virginia. If you and I decide we're going to live together, we need some legal structure to define that relationship. Exactly. Even if we don't get married. Right. right. This, because we've done it, we're going to do it. Nobody can stop us from doing it. Now we have to define it. That's, and, and we have to define what the, re, what, what the relationship is. The interesting thing is that marriage is basically a contract. We talk always about how marriage is a sacrament and it's a religious ceremony, et cetera, et cetera. It has religious overtones, and it does. For lots of people, it is a very important sacrament, very important religious issue. But the state sees it as the organization of a small business for the production of children, maybe, and the acquisition of assets. Right, and the division of assets if there's a, a breakup of the business. And so marriage is really a big contract. Now, the legislature doesn't give a hoot about the marriage contract. The most recent statute in West Virginia on domestic relations is simply a, a, a grafting into West Virginia law of the principles, principles for the dissolution of families promulgated by the American Law Institute. In other words, a bunch of law professors and practicing lawyers who are members of the American Law Institute went up, went out and wrote up what they thought was a model statute. The American Law Institute never had even enough consensus to, to um, uh, approve it, the final draft. But the West Virginia legislature took the draft and just incorporated it into our law without any changes whatsoever. Because nobody in the legislature is terribly interested because no campaign contributions depend upon what the domestic law is and no uh, constituency is particularly concerned with it except 
for big issues, perhaps like same-sex marriage, etc. And so it's going to be the courts who now have to flesh out this model statute. But here's, here's this, the interesting thing about domestic law is that the people who seem to be most interested in marriage are same-sex couples. Heterosexual couples are fleeing marriage in large numbers. The, 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 every year, the number of children who are born out of wedlock, either to parents who are living together and have a, are making a family unit but are not married, or just to single mothers, increases. I have heard recently that the majority of children born to women under the age of 30 are born to <coughs> unmarried women. That's true. Richard, we have come to the end of this program, but we're going to continue this conversation. I'll invite you back, and we're going to talk some more about how courts handle all of this. So thank you for being with us today, and come back next week. Good. Thank you also for being with us on behalf of the Law Works. I'm Dan Ringer. Good evening. If you would like to suggest a topic for a future The Law Works show, or if you're a school teacher and would like to receive a DVD of this show for classroom use, send us an email to thelawworks at comcast.net or visit us on Facebook. On The Law Works website at thelawworks.org, you'll find a listing of recent The Law Works programs, additional information about this show's topic, and video of this and recent shows. You can also find The Law Works programs on YouTube and iTunes. The Law Works is produced in cooperation with the Office of the West Virginia Attorney General, the West Virginia Bar Foundation, the Mountain State Bar, the Monongahela County Bar Association, and the West Virginia University College of Law. The Law Works is made possible by major grants from the West Virginia Attorney General and from Software Systems Incorporated, a West Virginia company established in 1975 which provides high-end support services, programming, and consulting for county government AS400 mid-range computer systems as well as PC-based systems, and by a grant from the West Virginia Bar Foundation. The West Virginia Bar Foundation, the philanthropic organization for West Virginia's legal profession and justice system, promoting public knowledge of the law in West Virginia. Additional support for the Law Works is provided by the West Virginia Supreme Court of Appeals. From West Virginia Public Broadcasting, 